0: Good evening everyone, uh, my name is Mark Boucher, I'm the Library Director here at Lake State and on behalf of the Library, um, I want to welcome you all to this evening's writer Series. Um, before we get started, uh, just a few housekeeping tips. One is that we have cookies and coffee and hot chocolate tea in the back. You're welcome to go back and make yourself at home, uh, enjoy. And I want to let you know if Couple other events that are coming up, uh, sponsored by Campus Library. The next one is this next Thursday, March 23rd at 7 p.m. Right here, uh, we'll be hosting our third annual TEDx LSSU um, event in which we'll have six speakers uh, talking about different interesting topics, all somewhat related to lifelong learning. Uh, that event like all of our others, is free. And I encourage you to attend, it will be very interesting. The next one after that is the poetry series, which will be on Tuesday, April 4th at 7 p.m. Our own Professor Jelena Rose will be talking about um, poems as stories, stories as poems. And the third will be on tuesday april 11th from 6 to 8 pm it will also be with our own uh member Jelena rose it will be an erasures workshop blackout poetry as visual art and if you've never seen this this is really cool you take a book and you cross out different words so that they're not readable but you keep some of the words and, and you're able to make poetry of that. That looks really cool. Isn't that right, T? Yeah. Is there anything you want to add to that? It's no, the... do do? okay, thank you, all right, good to know. Uh, and that's the rest of our uh, scholar, writers, poetry series for the rest of the semester. If you can turn off your phones, that would be great. And feel free to ask questions during the talk. Um, and now I am happy to introduce Tim Peters who is our featured speaker in the Writers Series. Uh, comes from Flint, Michigan. He's a native Michigander, is that what we were saying? Okay. Um, and even though he's from Flint, Uh, He is familiar with the Sioux. He used to go camping up here when he was a child. Um, He first got interested in small boats while on vacation and seeing the the boats go by. Um, He's currently, and has been for the last 32 years, the curator of collections at the Michigan History Museum uh, down in Lansing. He went to UM Flint uh, he was a history major. And then grad school at at Case Western, where he received his master's degree in history and museum studies. He was also the commencement speaker uh, for last year's Boat School graduation. For those of you that don't know, there's this fantastic uh, wooden boat school uh, down in Cedarville. In fact, it's possible we have some uh, in the crowd tonight, and if you are here, welcome. Uh, something interesting about Tim is that his first museum job was at the, i probably screw this up, International Center for Artificial Organs and Transplants. Is that basically what it is? So just imagine coming home, talking about your job at the end of the day, oh yeah, this brand new artificial heart came in. it's so exciting. So he, uh, he often refers to it as a spare parts museum. And it turns out it was located in an old funeral home. So um, again, our featured speaker is the author of Making Waves, Michigan Boat Building Industry from 1865 to 2000, and this book, um, just received uh, the Stuart Gross Award from Saginaw Valley State, and also uh, the Library of Michigan granted it uh, a Michigan notable book. Is that correct? Okay, so I want to take some time. Help me welcome Tim Peters.
1: the library staff for the introduction and uh, the invitation to come up tonight uh i do this every once in a while don't get out a whole lot to talk about boat building but it's one of the things i kind of developed an interest and passion for when i was working at the sloan museum over in flint uh at the sloan we had a small uh toy boat that was in the collection that was marked miss america on the side of it and as i was doing some uh, research for labels and whatnot. I found out uh, it was built by a guy from here in Michigan by the name of Gar Wood, and it led to a larger uh, study of boat building in general, and and became sort of a hobby and passion over the past thirty odd years. And so, uh, eventually, it became uh, the source of this book. And so, I'd like to talk a little bit about making waves and. Uh, Women who would uh, make birch bark canoes throughout the state. And uh, they would take uh, roots and the birch bark that was harvested from the different trees and uh, form the hulls from different boats that you would see. Uh, They built different kinds of canoes for different styles of uh, different styles of canoes for different types of waterways. Uh, You would use a different form of bow on a canoe uh, in a lake setting than you would for a river setting, for instance. And And the seat keeping abilities were of course uh, derived over time. So this is a shot from the uh, Peterborough Canoe Museum in uh, Ontario. Some canoes were built uh, rather unusually right here in Sault Ste. Marie. These are an unusual form uh, called a lap straight style canoe where they're actually a plank hull and they were built uh, right in the area here. And uh, you don't find this form hardly anywhere else in the country. Uh, but these boats that you see uh, were used for uh, running tourists down through the rapids. Uh, they were also used for commercial fishing. Uh, I think a few of them were probably built over in the Sugar
0: Island area, but I'm still trying to find out more of the story of that. Before we... Yes, Mark? So why, why was lap strake done here and not done elsewhere?
1: I'm not really sure. Uh, it might have been before, uh, the... The person who developed the canoe was uh, more of European origin and, you know, a lot of them were uh, uh, forms that were birch bark that were used over in Canada. Um, I'm not really sure of what the answer to that is. Uh, our first recreational boats and, uh, were preceded by work boats that were oftentimes uh, small rowboats or yaw boats that hung off the back of Grand Lake schooners like you would see here. Uh, we also had Mackinaw boats, which are a traditional boat form that was uh, commonly used down around the streets of Mackinaw. Uh, this is a single-masted form of that boat uh, that was a double-ended boat that originally came to us from Ireland. It was originally called the Drontheim boat and uh, was brought over by early immigrants to the Mackinaw region. And it was really unusual because it had very, very good sea-keeping abilities, meaning it would keep the water out and the, the people safe, and it was easily maneuverable in the different uh, waterways that we had in this region. And they were oftentimes considered like the uh, pickup truck of the Great Lakes where you would uh, be able to carry a small cargo of uh, people or goods, uh, do some fishing out of it. You could use it for all sorts of different things. It isn't until about the 1860s and 1870s that you start getting the beginnings of leisure time in, in the state where uh, people had enough available wealth and enough available leisure time, where they weren't working a 12-hour day, and they were making more than a dollar a day for their wages, uh, you begin to get the beginnings of leisure time in the state. And uh, one of the earliest uh, social clubs in the state was uh, the Detroit Boat Club, and it gets its start in the 1830s. And uh, as you can see from the illustration here, they were. Uh, Primarily doing rowing barges, uh, competitive rowing as uh, a common sport in the 1830s. Uh, But people were also going for sailing rides and also uh, using canoes. And it isn't until you get the growth of the railroads that uh, start working their way northwards through the lower peninsula and also uh, uh, east-west, crisscrossing the state, that you start getting the development of resorts that tend to follow after them. Uh, It's the same kind of pattern that actually happens over in the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York, uh, where people would start leaving the cities and start going out to the small lakes uh, by rail, uh, out to different places where they can enjoy nature. Uh, One type of place like that was Reed's Lake down by Grand Rapids, Michigan. And you can see in this uh, shot from about the 1870s or 1880s that uh, people would build a small fleet of rowboats and then uh, they would tow those rowboats out to a favorite fishing ground usually with a small steamer like you would see uh, towards the back of the picture. And so this uh, sort of a boat livery operation was used uh, for people to do uh, recreational fishing. You would go out uh, for a day trip and uh, the steamer would tow you out to the the favorite fishing hole and then uh, leave you there and then pull you back, back in at night. Another kind of craft that we had for recreation purposes, uh, for mass transit if you will, were uh, small steamers like you would see here. This is a river steamer called the Dove uh, on the Flint River. And they would take people off to picnic landings, a place where you would have a a family get-together or uh, sometimes a church meeting or social group get-together out at a picnic landing where you'd spend the day at that particular fine site and then go back and forth each day by boat. We also had boats that went across the northern part of the Lower Peninsula uh, through what was known as the Inland Waterway. This is a ship called the Topinabee, and uh, it crisscrossed the northern part of the Lower Peninsula uh, from about uh, uh, Mullet Lake on over to Burt Lake uh, on the west side of the state. One of the first uh, people that uh, became active in Uh, resort industry down in state uh, in the sense of building boats was a fellow by the name of Christopher Columbus Smith. You may know him as the founder of Chris Craft Corporation. I don't know if you've seen Chris Craft Boats, but this is how he got his start. He was a decoy duck manufacturer and uh, built duck boats for hunting. Uh, Again, serving that whole resort uh, trade, uh, broke dogs to hunt, uh, made the paths for the boat. He did literally everything He did market hunting, uh, hunting uh, animals uh, for resale and that kind of thing. And his brother gets started making small boats uh, in this form. And there's a whole bunch of people all along the St. Clair River and the Detroit River downstate that uh, form the same kind of function, where they would uh, form temporary small uh, partnerships uh, to build boats. Other people doing that same kind of work were people like Thomas Allen down at Detroit or Ira Kendrick. Kendrick's over in Port Huron. Uh, and they're trying to make a living by doing uh, recreational boats and also work boats at the same time. You see on the Kendrick's ad here where he was doing uh, yawl boats for, again, those Great Lakes Schooners. Uh, we even have uh, boat builders in the 1880s up in Marquette. Uh, there were three of them working at the same place at the same time. It was that big of a community. Uh, and it was the same uh, ship repairing but also recreational
0: boat building.
1: Uh, One other gentleman that did the same kind of work for resorts was Charles Plass, who uh, built rowing craft, uh, rowing shells, if you will, uh, down in Detroit, but also uh, moved over to Orchard Lake and built uh, sailing yachts like the one called here. Now, early power boating was kind of a different experience. And here you see a painting from our collection at the museum of uh, going for a a boat ride and doing some hunting from a boat and imagine what it was like in the early years of power boating when it was a steam driven engine you had to have a licensed steam engineer to actually operate your steam engine in your boat you just couldn't do it on your own you had to have a licensed engineer that's the guy in the center of the boat with the uh, uh, white sleeves and the black cap and you usually had to sit on top of a load of coal which would be the fuel for that boat and that was your seat. And a lot of times you had the cinders and ash coming out over your head uh, and dropping on you while you're trying to hunt. And so uh, it was kind of an interesting experience. Uh, It wasn't something where you just turn on the key and get going, you had to wait about half an hour or longer for the steam to rise in the engine. So it's something you had to plan well in advance and you had to have the right people with you in order to do uh, steam launch uh, excursion some people could be really wealthy and have their own uh, steam yachts. Uh, This is one called Sigma which is about 140 foot long wooden uh, steam yacht Uh, and these kinds of boats were, a few of them were built on the Great Lakes, Uh, just about 20 of them here in Michigan, but uh, elsewhere throughout the Great Lakes there were numbers of of these different steam yachts. Um, Also uh, in the Great Lakes we built electric boats. This is uh, launches that electric launches that were built for the Chicago exposition uh, in 1893 in Chicago and it was a battery-operated boat and they hauled tens of thousands of visitors around through the exposition uh, with these Detroit Boatworks electric launches and dropping them off at different sites uh, throughout the parks and uh, Detroit Boatworks uh, was formed by uh, Frankie Kirby who was a famous steamboat designer uh, down in Detroit and uh, Developed some of the most famous paddle whaling uh, passenger steamers on the Great Lakes. But his passion was also in yachting, and uh, he formed Detroit Boatworks to build this and other kinds of yachts. Uh, they also built Michigan's first submarine. This is a wooden submarine uh, built uh, and tested on the River Rouge uh, by Detroit Boatworks. And George Baker was a guy from Chicago who designed this thing, and it looked like a, a fat cigar made out of wood and they tested it in River Rouge and got it down to about a depth of 12 feet and uh, successfully got it up and down and had uh, exterior propellers uh, to pull the boat along and also uh, up and down. So there's kind of uh, engine day cells on the outside that would spin and turn. Uh, he tried selling it to the, the Navy, but uh, he died of an appendicitis attack before he could uh, actually tran- uh, make this transition. Otherwise, we could have become a submarine-building capital here in the state. One of the other uh, steam yachts that was built uh, by that same Detroit Boat Works, was one called Cynthia here, and it was built of steel back in the 1890s. Now, if you've studied a little bit of uh, Michigan history or U.S. history, the steel industry was still getting off on its uh, grounding feet in the 1890s, and so this was a a new form of uh, material for the hull construction of a boat. Most of Michigan's small boat building firms early on were small operations that had employed, like uh, the Spring Lake Clinker Boat Manufacturing Company here, uh, they employed between four and seven people. Uh, they would oftentimes ship out their boats by railroad line. You see the railroad rails right in front of the building, and uh, it's still around today as the Barrett Boat Works, uh, a big marina operation down in Spring Lake. And this one was kind of unusual. It was incorporated as a company uh, in the 1880s. That was kind of unusual for firms at that time, especially boat builders. Well, the first real industry sections uh, in Michigan uh, was in the production of what they call folding canvas boats. And this was a little niche of the industry that gets started down around Kalamazoo and Battle Creek area. And they would build folding canvas boats that could be tucked away into a bag or a box, and then uh, transported by horseback uh, to your favorite lake or uh, hunting grounds. Um, These boats became really popular by the 1890s for the uh, Yukon Gold Rush, because they were a lightweight boat that you could uh, assemble quickly. It only took a few minutes to put it together, and then you could go by boat, as opposed to walking with a lot of equipment on your back, uh, to the gold fields. And so they sold thousands of these uh, small folding canvas bows. Uh, Nathaniel Osgood was a jeweler down in Battle Creek. He had a number of ladies working on sewing machines in the back of the jewelry store to build the canvas hulls like you would see here for that particular boat. So it uh, shows another kind of unique craft that was uh, a specialty in some forms in Michigan. Uh, there's a number of different companies that... Uh, following the path of uh, Nathaniel Osgood there's the life-saving folding canvas boat company and the Kalamazoo folding canvas boat company and a number of others also on the west side of the state we have our first uh, marine gasoline engine makers and well the first one in the country was Clark Sims who gets a start over in Grand Rapids Michigan Uh, before even that he was in Ohio uh, and with developed some of the early prototypes of an early gasoline engine. Uh, but he comes up to Grand Rapids and creates a company that employs about 40 people by the mid-1890s. And he invents what's known as the two-cycle gasoline engine. It's the same kind of engine that you see on a lawnmower today, where it's a very simple kind of engine. This is what it looked like. It was about a 300-pound piece of equipment that would go in the boat. And Boats made a really good test bed for testing out the engines because they could handle a whole lot of weight and not a whole lot of horsepower in this particular instance. Uh, It has a a huge uh, flywheel on the front end that could uh, maybe weigh a couple hundred pounds and then a single vertical cylinder over here that uh, would be what they call hit and miss firing where it would hit every once in a while and and not every time. Yes? How many horsepower would that be? About two. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but a whole lot of weight for that 2 horsepower. But then again, they were just starting to develop the idea of what an internal combustion engine would be like, and a lot of that same development takes place over on the west side of the state, over in Grand Rapids area, and also in the St. Joseph area. Uh, another guy who gets to start building these early gasoline engines is Charles Brady King. He's also the first guy to drive an automobile on the streets of Detroit, but uh, he gets to start primarily as a boat builder. He has one of those early gasoline engines that he's testing out in the 1890s uh, before he goes off to war during the Spanish-American War in 1898. Uh, He later comes back and and, uh, gets into automobile building as opposed to boat building. One other person that develops his own engine and his own boats (laughs) is a fellow by the name of George Gear. And uh, George Gear, builds the uh, monitor engine over at Grand Rapids, and also uh, has his own yacht works on that same Reeds Lake that we saw a little bit earlier on the other shot. But he's also building uh, engine castings that you could sell to other people, and also uh, small boat frames that you could ship out as a package to different people. The yacht clubs and the boat clubs were really the social organizations that really helped promote early boating. Uh, what we have is uh, small organizations in most of the major cities throughout the state, uh, they have a, a boat club or a yacht club that might consist of 100 people or, or fewer, sometimes 40 or 50, that uh, would either do sail racing or early power boat racing. And it's really these yacht clubs and uh, motorboat clubs that developed the early rules for racing early on, for uh, boating in general. Uh, just because the gasoline engine had been developed in the 1890s doesn't mean that sail racing hadn't gone away. Uh, this is the really world's champion, or Great Lakes champion, uh, called Spray, uh, that was a popular boat down in the Detroit area uh, in about 1905. And so the early yachtsmen were really worried about what was gonna happen with this new gasoline engine is it gonna uh, cause sail racing to, to go bye-bye, and it ended well, up being very popular even today. One of the big early manufacturers in terms of companies uh, is a company called uh, Truscott Boat Manufacturing Company. I don't know if you can see real well, but in this picture showing the shop floor of their boat shop, there's all kinds of different sizes and shapes and forms of boats being built all at the same time. There was no uh, standardized set of construction that was going on. It was all uh, pretty much done as orders came in and people would build a boat Be in a small rowboat right next to a 40 foot yacht, as you can see from the picture here. The workman would have to go off to a uh, tool bin to get the proper parts to build the yacht with and then go back to his workstation and and build the boat. And uh, that was done uh, throughout this plant uh, down in uh, St. Joseph, Michigan. And they employed about 200, 240 people as early as uh, 1905. They also built their own engines. Uh, This is typically what the uh, boats that they manufactured look like. It's a small gasoline powered launch uh, with, again, a pretty heavy engine, but slow speed, uh, but was a good form of entertainment and recreation for a lot of people. (coughs) Another early manufacturer in the state that became very large was over in Muskegon, Michigan, and was actually uh, named after the city of Racine, Wisconsin. It was called the Racine Boat Manufacturing Company. What happened was that the company got burnt out of its home in Racine, Wisconsin, and Muskegon, if you know your Michigan lumber history, uh, was one of those cities that was losing its uh, lumber uh, sawmills and whatnot because all the timber had been logged off, the big timber, let's say. And so they were looking for industries that they could fill in uh, to replace that with uh, for all the jobs that they were losing with the loss of the lumber jobs. And so they invited the Racine Boat Manufacturing Company to relocated his plant over in Muskegon in about 1904, 195, And so they built this huge plant extending out into Muskegon Lake and uh, they were building boats in both uh, wood and steel. They were also building uh, light ships, uh, ships that were sort of like traveling lighthouses that could be uh, parked over shoal, shoal waters and uh, used as an identifying beacon point. And they built uh, three or more of those and then also other Boats for the government and also a number of different large yachts for yachtsmen. Um, one of the other big industries that evolves out of Michigan is called the knockdown boat industry. And these are essentially a kit kind of boat, a boat that would be built as a kit from a load of parts. And there was a guy by the name of Clifford Brooks down in Bay City, Michigan, who kind of comes up with this idea by watching his wife do sewing patterns on their dining room table. She was laying out paper patterns on top of pieces of cloth, and he said, you know, if I do this, only doing it with wood and paper patterns, I could make boat parts and then package them together. And then I could send them by mail order all over the country. In fact, all over the world. And by 1905, uh, Clifford Brooks and Brooks Boat Manufacturing Company was building something on the order of 10,000 boats in a year and shipping them by mail order as parts for kids uh, to places all over the country. He was also a newspaper advertising executive who uh, uh, knew how to use the press in terms of advertising to get the boat uh, information out there to a populist. And uh, they would sell them through uh, mail order catalogs. You would uh, find an ad in a magazine that advertised the company. And then uh, you would get the catalog, you would find the kind of boat that you want, and then you would telegraph the company or telephone them uh, what boat you wanted, uh, a stock number of uh, boat parts. And then you could have your friends uh, help you build it in your backyard and uh, launch it, and you could all go out for a fine sailing expedition. And so, this whole concept of KD or knockdown uh, boats starts off and uh, continues on in the Bay City and Saginaw area uh, rather permanently. It soon spreads it to other parts of the country. It even gets into building knockdown houses there were huge house companies like Aladdin homes and uh, North American homes and others that took that same idea of building a, a home out of kid parts and you could build a house out of the desert where uh, it was just shipped out to a specific spot and you would build it from there uh, the downriver area around Detroit area was also a leading Location for building cruisers, high-speed cruisers, uh, in about 1914 up to the time of World War One, and there were some big engine builders. Uh, yeah. What
0: did they consider high speed? Like uh, high speed, miles an hour.
1: Uh, 35. Really? 35-40 for a boat like this. Uh, these are huge engines in this boat uh, by this time. This would be uh, uh, I need to uh around World War One. You could reach about uh, about 30, 35, something like that. Uh, with a 12 cylinder engine that would be a third again longer than this table and just a huge piece of equipment. Uh, Carlton Wilby was a a designer that later got into shipbuilding. Uh, He also designed some of the Staten Island ferries a little bit later on. Uh, During World War I it was both uh, good and bad for the boat building industry in Michigan. Uh, A lot of people would have boats that were built uh, to give to the military. Uh, They would build sort of like Miss Toledo that you see here and uh, then delivered to the U.S. Navy for patrolling the inland waters around the Great Lakes. Uh, it helped liberate other boats to be used for the war effort. Uh, Henry Ford, um, the automobile maker, gets into building small scale ships for chasing submarines and uh, this is the first attempt with the Eagle boats of building a standardized vessel that could be used uh, that could be constructed quickly uh, by about 10,000 people and then shipped overseas to fight the submarine menace, which was really important during World War I. Uh, He only got about three of them produced before and shipped overseas before the war ended. And so uh, he took the remaining 60 they had contracts for and uh, either scrapped them out or or sold them to other governments and things like that.
0: What were those made of, wood or metal? Uh, Steel,
1: those were Steel. steel boats. Uh, he found out that there was quite a learning curve from going from cars to going to boats, and uh, training train, to train people how to do uh, welded steel or riveted steel ship construction was a lot different from building a car so it wasn 't really a successful experiment, but what they did was uh, help break the ground for what would later become standardized boat construction. Uh, sail raising still is important at this time. Uh, here you see uh, small sailboats that were used in uh, Detroit Boat Club races. Now, two of the most important people uh, in Michigan's boat building history are Wood and Chris Smith. Chris Smith is that same guy who was that decoy duck manufacturer. He's the guy that's standing beside the boat on the right-hand side. The guy that's sitting in the boat is Wood, And although he doesn't look like it, he's actually a millionaire at this point. He made his fortune by building uh, the hydraulic hoist for dump trucks. Now think about how important dump trucks are to the construction industry and road building industry. Uh, You need a whole bunch of them, and also during the war effort, uh, during World War I. Uh, And so he made quite a fortune in uh, the dump truck industry and used it for his passion, which was building race boats. And he built a whole number of different boats and uh, became a very successful racer, dominating the sport throughout the 1920s. He would compete internationally against uh, people from Great Britain, uh, the Harmsworth Trophy. Uh, he also set the uh, world water speed record numerous times. Uh, I think uh, he won the Gold Cup something like four times, which is the uh, American uh, high-end racing trophy for unlimited powered boats. Uh, Some of the boats were called Miss Detroit, and you notice uh, that they have a little bow of rudder. It's a, you can really see it, but it's right at the very Front front portion of the boat there, Uh, and that was used for steering the boat uh, that way. Another series of boats was called Miss America, and they would use uh, aircraft engines to power these boats, or surplus aircraft engines in some instances, called the Liberty Engine. He also worked with a company called the Packard Motor Car Company uh, to develop uh, gasoline engines to power these boats. Now, this is A four-engine boat uh, using that same type of aircraft engine uh, in 1932, it has about 6,400 horsepower uh, in a 40-foot-long boat, and it could go about 132 miles an hour. Now, ask yourself, was this guy crazy, or was he, uh, you know, a a good sportsman? uh, Well, what about the guy right beside him? Because he was taking his own life in his own hands, too, Oral Johnson. uh, And they cracked up a couple of them. One of them, called Miss America 7, uh, went to pieces at 70 miles an hour out in the Detroit River. And uh, Wood was thrown out of the boat, as was Johnson. Johnson was uh, severely injured in the wreck. Uh, But Wood was able to retrieve the engines from the boat out of the bottom of the Detroit River and had a new hull built in under two weeks to go out and race again against uh, the British in uh, the Harmsworth Trophy races. So that's the kind of guy he was. Uh, He later goes on to build his own uh, boat company uh, that catered to the high-end boat purchaser, people that were fairly wealthy. Uh, Chris Smith, on the other hand, tended to market his boats to more family-oriented individuals. This is a picture of Chris taking notes during one of the speedboat races. And this is one of the shots of a boat that would be typical of the early uh, Chris crafts that he built. They would have the passenger seating for uh, a cockpit up at the forward part of the boat, and then the engine more or less uh, slightly behind center of the boat, and then finally passenger seating behind the engine. Uh, and again, these boats could go 35, 40, 45 miles an hour, depending on the power of the engine. A uh, lot of them started as four-cylinder engines, and then you could up that to a six-cylinder uh, engine and uh, go up to the, the higher speeds. And a lot of these were used uh, competitively in racing. This is a, he becomes actually the largest boat manufacturer in the country uh, as C.C. Smith and Sons, down in Algonac, Michigan. And uh, they were the first ones to really mass produce large numbers of boats uh, for an audience um, using mass production techniques where one guy would do uh, simply laying on the fabric between the layers of the hull. another. A couple of guys would do the framing of the hull. Uh, other people would do the finishing. So, the the boat builder of this era is a lot different from the guys who worked at, say, the Truscott Company earlier on, who, who had to build the whole boat and finish the whole boat, to these guys that uh, would do just a part. Yes? Were the boats uh, built the low lumber? A lot of times, this is uh, mahogany from the Philippines or, or elsewhere. So, um, sometimes they would use uh, white cedar for some of the hulls. On, on earlier boats, but uh, they're starting to go in the mahogany so because of their uh, durability and a um, lot of water, basically. Right. Yeah. Other questions that you might have so far? Mm-hmm. Uh, another prominent naval architect from this time is a guy by the name of John L. Hacker, and uh, the Hacker Boat Company is still around today, only it's in upstate New York as opposed to down in Detroit. But he had no formal training. He uh, learned boat design by basically uh, studying a correspondence course in his dad's ice house. His dad sold ice to different customers in the Detroit area and had an ice house. And and John Hacker would keep the books for the company and there was a lot of spare time. So he just learned how to design boats that way. He had just a really good eye for what a boat should look like. Um, The styling still survives today. You see a lot of boats. Uh, In fact, the uh, Great Lakes Boat Building School down in Cedarville was building a a replica of one of the earlier Hector boats. Well, this is one of the boats he designed called the Belle Isle Bearcat. And it was, again, a high-speed, high-powered boat uh, driven by actress Peggy Wood. They would sell some of these boats to Hollywood uh, actors and actresses uh, for, again, racing or just for recreation. the hacker boats were a lot, again, quite similar to the uh, crisscross that you saw earlier with the, the same kind of layout of the cockpit forward and forward steering controls, engine and other on one, and uh, passenger accommodations towards the rear. Horace Dodge of Dodge Motor Car Company, thing, was also a boat builder and boat racer. Uh, he built boats called the Dodge Water Car that he intended to market through the Dodge Auto Dealerships. And this is Boris driving one of of those boats. Uh, John Hecker also designed designed the Century Thunderbolt, which is a a high-speed, smaller racer with uh, inboard power. And uh, these were very prominent in racing in the 1920s and 1930s. One of the biggest factors in developing boat building in Michigan was rum running across the Detroit River because everybody wanted a fast boat. You wanted a fast boat if you were a rum runners, so you could get across the river in the least amount of time possible. And if you were on the side of law enforcement trying to chase those rum runners, you also wanted a fast boat to try and catch them. And so uh, it really led to what essentially became an arms race between uh, uh, the boat builders and, uh, and the rum runners uh, where the boat builders were uh, serving both sides, both law enforcement and the rum runners uh, because everybody wanted a fast boat. Uh, here the, at Detroit the river was only about a mile wide and so it's estimated that something like 75% of the alcoholic beverages coming into uh, the United States came across this one mile stretch of river and there were all kinds of hiding places along the river, there were islands, there were uh, boathouses where you could go in after dark and and uh, have your uh, cargo t- transported over to Chicago by, by vehicle after you got across the river. but. Uh, The Canadian government would also uh, help by establishing export docks, and uh, you could pull up to an export dock and say, I'm taking this load to Havana, Cuba, and they didn't care. They just signed the paperwork and off you would go across the river to uh, drop it off at your neighbor's house. Uh, Occasionally, the the rum chasers uh, would catch up with somebody and uh, they would Find a quick way to dispose of the cargo, usually by throwing it overboard, where that alcohol has been kept in a very cool, dark place for about the past century. <laughs> so think about that if you go scuba diving in, in the near future. Probably in the St. Mary's River right here, similar kinds of things might happen.
0: Would it still be good if I found some? <laughs> Possibly, yes. <laughs> uh,
1: The only reason why I know that is that I was working with some divers once who uh, salvaged a cargo from a shipwreck called the Regina that sank in the great storm in 1913. They cracked open a bottle of champagne that they found on it. It's still good. (laughs) I'm not sure I'd drink a whole lot of it. (laughs) but Well, one of the big knockdown boat manufacturers that becomes uh, famous later on is a cruiser manufacturer. It was Default Boat and Motor Works, and they would build uh, large scale cruisers for the auto barons, people who made their wealth in the automobile industry. But they also subcontracted to, to people like Horace Dodge to build the Dodge water cars because he didn't have enough plant capacity to build his own boats. So these small boats that you see in the foreground here are Dodge water cars that are ready to be shipped uh, out of the uh, Defoe Boat and Murrowworks plant up in Bay City. Another prominent builder uh, that worked with John Hacker. Uh, to build a few of his cruisers and stuff was so a fellow by the name of Ben Huskin, and Ben Huskin built the boat from a hacker design called Thunderbird, and this boat you can still ride on over in Lake Tahoe, and it was called the uh, 70 mile an hour cocktail lounge. It was owned by Bill Harrow of uh in Reno, Nevada, and it had a all stainless steel upper cabin and a mahogany hull boat like you see here. And you just, uh, uh, very famous boat. It was later on uh, the subject of a U.S. postage stamp. And, uh, it was known as a 1939 design. And you can still ride on this boat today for a uh, small fortune. Now Michigan also became a home for early, uh, lightweight metal boat construction. And some of this took place uh, in Michigan even before World War II. Uh, there was a guy down the way, Charles Steiver, who invented a canoe uh, using magnesium for its hull, magnesium being a real lightweight metal uh, that was being produced by Dow Chemical Company. And uh, in the late 1930s, he uh, received a patent for building a uh, Stiver canoe. This is an advertisement for that canoe, uh, made out of what they called Dow Metal at that time. But I love this ad because it talks about it's the easiest of all canoes to handle. It's much stronger than wood, safe even for children. and assuming that the kids would go out on their own and take it down a river. But uh, he has a small company that builds about 100 of these canoes before he goes out of business uh, towards the tail end of the depression. Uh, And then he um, dies in 1941, so he never really saw what his company would later become the basis for, which would be the lightweight aluminum boat building industry throughout the state. Now during World War II, uh, Michigan boats played a real, real important role in terms of uh, taking Europe back uh, from Germany and also the Pacific Islands back from Japan. We built thousands upon thousands of landing craft here in Michigan. If it wasn't for those uh, landing craft, uh, Normandy could never have been invaded nor the Pacific Islands. And so uh, these landing craft oftentimes built by Chris craft and other kinds of uh, boats uh, of other kinds Uh, were real important for the war effort. Some of the other kinds that we built here were uh, prototypes of what they called the torpedo boat, uh, or patrol torpedo boat, PT3. This was built by Fisher Boat Works down in Detroit. It was a little too small in terms of the Navy decided that it wasn't an appropriate size of boat that they needed to do that kind of work, and the contracts went to other companies and other places, but some of the important prototyping work was done here in Michigan. Uh, David Carter Shipbuilding Company down in Benton Harbor uh, built things like mine sweepers and mine layers and air-sea rescue boats for rescuing pilots that had crashed into the ocean. Uh, and these were real important kinds of boats because it saved the lives of the crew. Uh, and the reason why Michigan firms were kind of restricted in one sense was that we had no way of getting larger boats, larger ships uh, delivered to the coast because of the restrictions of the Great Lakes Basin. We had only two exit points. One was to go through the Welland Canal through Canada to uh, take our boats out to the ocean. Or conversely, the only other way out was through the Chicago Drainage Canal out to the Mississippi River. And even then, you had to cut down the masts off the boat and lay them on the deck so that you could get under the bridges of the Mississippi River. But those were the only two ways that you could get larger boats of any kind out to the oceans. So most of what was built here in the state of Michigan was small stuff that could be transported by rail or or otherwise driven out to the Great Lakes uh, through those smaller waterways. Uh, This shows a uh, a submarine chaser called a patrol craft 451 uh, being built at Defoe. And uh, what we did a lot of in the Great Lakes region here was side launching, where the boats were launched sideways into uh, things like the Saginaw River. which was a lot more efficient than trying to launch it stern on because the river wasn't all that wide. And they invented a technique at Defoe for building the ship upside down, which is a really good time-saving effort. Uh, If you can imagine, uh, trying to weld downwards is a lot easier than trying to hold up a sheet of steel and weld upwards. And so uh, the whole concept of building a whole ship upside down and then flipping it over by using uh, two wheels and a crane, basically, uh, to flip it back right side up and then finish the inside. It was a big time saving effort. So, uh, Defoe really uh, became very famous for its Defoe rollover technique of building ships. Other small companies uh, like Eddie Shipbuilding Corporation uh, went on to build small uh, motor launches that were used for harbor uh, Harbor patrols, also for moving around those landing craft that I talked about earlier. Uh, companies like Chrysler uh, made a thing called the Sea Mule, which is used again to push around the landing craft uh, to get them organized and ready for uh, for the invasion efforts. Uh, even a small UP builder by the name of I. Hemming Arson over in Menominee, Michigan, uh, was building small rowboats that would be used on those submarine chasers that, that were being built at the uh, Sturgeon Bay shipyard, uh, they lived in a a small apartment that was over the top of their shop. And he and his wife, uh, I think his name was uh, Anna, uh, worked 60 or 70 hour weeks uh, building these small lifeboats to get them ready uh, for shipping off to the Navy on the larger ships that were going off to the war. He had lost a leg in a shipyard accident a number of years earlier, and this is just one way that he could uh, contribute to the war effort uh, by building these small boats. Now, after World War II was over, uh, all kinds of changes happened within the boat building industry, especially in Michigan. Uh, Builders had to deal with material shortages. We no longer had uh, available plywood uh, to work with. Uh, Sometimes there were new materials to deal with, things like fiberglass, vinyl was invented during the war, Uh, molded plywood that was oftentimes used for casts and things like that for uh, soldiers' arms and legs. And then finally, uh, automotive styling was coming to the forefront. And as you see here a boat that was uh, built out of Cadillac, Michigan by a, a Cadillac Marine uh, called the Sea Lark. And it was designed by an industrial designer by the name of Brooks Stevens to make it look kind of like boat looking as a jet. And it has the big, tall tail fins. It has the wraparound uh, cockpits. Very similar to what was going on in automotive design at the same time. You have the beginnings of the wraparound windshield, uh, big bulbous fenders on cars, uh, headlights that were either streamlined or or finally concealed later on. All those same kinds of technologies that were being applied to the boat building industry. And so we had boats with high tail fins like the 59 Cadillac. Now Defoe uh, still wanted to get back into building boats, uh, large scale cruisers, uh, for its original audience, which was auto bearers, you know that, but uh, they tried to build one that was a little bit too big. It was a 106 foot long cruiser that uh, never sold too well. So they ended up getting out of building pleasure boats and going back into building more work boats and things on that order, and also more military contracts after the war. Another UP builder, uh, T. Dale Bennett, over in Escanaba. Built uh, things like the Isle Royal Queen II, which is a ferry boat that would take passengers out to Isle Royal. And uh, he came back from the war as a uh, deep sea diver who had learned the welding techniques as part of ship repair work, and that's how he got started in the boat building. He also made a large number of fish tugs and other kinds of work boats, but also recreational cruisers up to about 30 feet long. Yeah. One of the biggest Small recreational builders in the state for lightweight metal boats was Harwell Incorporated, uh, builders of aerocraft boats. And it was started by two guys, uh, Leon Harkins and uh, a fellow by the last name of Wilsey, uh who combined their last names to form Harwell. Uh, and they got their start building uh, bomber wings. Uh, at the Briggs manufacturing plant down in Detroit. So they had learned how to manufacture things out of aluminum really well with all the different riveting techniques and whatnot. And they were able to apply that same technology to building lightweight aluminum boats. And here you see uh, small aluminum runabouts. This was an experimental boat that they developed in 1958. A big outboard powered uh, cruiser. Default that's currently at the museum down in St. Charles, Michigan, downstate. Well, Mark, I think I saw a wage-maker Wolverine, and uh, this is a mold that was made of molded plywood, and uh, they would use two-tone paint jobs, again, similar to what the automotive industry was doing. But uh, molded plywood was uh, used by making plywood and then applying it to a mold under high pressure and uh, temperature uh, to make uh, really deep forms, uh, curves in the form of of the wooden hull. And it became a very strong, uh, sturdy type of boat hull to build. And uh, they would ship these all over over the country. So uh, uh, Wagemaker became one of the uh, leading manufacturers of what we call
0: molded molded, uh, plywood hulls. And those happen to be some of the most beautiful boats that built I say that because
1: I have them. Uh, another prominent boat builder was Century Boat Works over in uh, Manistee, Michigan. Uh, they, again, went to the automotive stylists to uh, build boats with uh, vinyl tops and uh, wooden hulls, but still uh, carried out the same type of techniques that the automotive stylists would use. Uh, Some boat companies just never got off the ground successfully at all. Uh, This was a post-war manufacturer called Turner Enterprises. They built a boat called Turner Craft. They built them in very small numbers out of fiberglass, but uh, it never caught on. Maybe because the styling wasn't really good, Uh, but they're very, very collectible nowadays because there were so few of them ever built. And So rarity gets into the whole thing of Uh, boat collecting sometimes. Arena Craft was formed by uh, Dan Arena who was a prominent uh, speedboat racer and this was a company over in Mount Clemens, Michigan that would build uh, high powered fiberglass hull boats and again you see those same tail fins and uh, they would use automotive type engines uh, uh, called Dearborn Interceptors uh, for uh, powering these these boats and they're kind of expensive but also uh, very fast and would get you around rather quickly. Other people would be more used to using uh, outboard-powered boats like the Aqua Swan made over in White Pigeon, Michigan. It was an aluminum uh, boat that uh, was also built early on in steel. And uh, a lot of early agricultural tank manufacturers, people who would make tanks for uh, watering horses or or feed on uh, different farm lots and whatnot, Got into boat building uh, by getting to metal hole boats by using the same technologies that they would use to build a tank to build a boat. Now, uh, John Hacker, one of those early uh, mahogany runabout builders and designers, uh, continued to build boats after World War II uh, and he inflated uh, some race boats. Uh, this one was called My Sweetie, and they would use Warsaw plus Allison aircraft engines to power. Uh, These racing boats on the Detroit River. And huge crowds would come to see these boat races. Sometimes 200,000, 300,000, 500,000 people would come down to the waterfront to watch these uh, people compete. Another prominent uh, builder here in Michigan was Les Staudeker. And he was actually a church pew manufacturer who got into building, again, using uh, plywood and other forms, uh, using big forms to bend. Wood into different shapes to create boats like uh, Shanty 2 or Shanty 1 here. Uh, this is a, what they call a, a three pointer where we have two sponsons or, or uh, areas in the front of the boat and then a single small place in the back uh, to support the craft. And the uh, boat such as Such Crust 3, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Schaefer Bread down in the Detroit area, but this is uh, one of the boats they sponsored called the Such Crust 3 and it became one of the leading fast boats in the whole country. There's a big competition between uh, the racing boats uh, out of the Detroit area against the ones in Seattle, Washington. And it was a big competition for a number of years in the 1950s. of well, the other builders uh, on the west side of the state by the name of Leon Slickers was actually a Chris Craft employee at the Chris Craft factory over in Holland, Michigan, and uh, he was laid off during the course of a strike at the plant and decided enough of this, I'm gonna go out and start my own company. So he and another fellow uh, got together and formed Slickcraft, uh, using part of his last name as the title for the company. And uh, they became famous manufacturers in Michigan of fiberglass boats. And uh, they were very high quality and uh, they attracted a lot of attention, especially of large conglomerates that were looking to expand. And these are uh, conglomerates who are oftentimes sporting good firms. Uh, uh, the one that bought out Slickers was AMF, the people who make bowling equipment and uh, bowling balls and stuff like that. Uh, they ended up buying out uh, AMF, or AMF bought them out to call it AMF Slick Craft. Uh, Slickers decided that he didn't like being bought out too well because the quality started dropping in the boats that he produced, and they weren't listening to him too well, so he goes out. And he uh, leaves that company and forms another one called S2 Yachts for Slickers Part 2. And uh, he was restricted in his contract that he couldn't make power boats, but he could still make sailing boats. And so this is a Slicker sailing yacht that uh, he built. And that company later transitioned to what is now known as Tierra Yachts, and still built in the Holland area uh, down in Southwest Michigan. Four Winds is an important manufacturer up in Cadillac, Michigan, uh, in the state today. And the Wind Brothers get their start. uh, uh, They were selling boats for a guy by the name of George Spicer. I don't know if you ever heard of Spicer Marine downstate, but uh, they were a large uh, marina operation and supplier. But uh, George Spicer uh, had a small company, and he said uh, he had the two Wind Brothers that uh, were selling boats for him. And he said, if you don't buy the company, I'm going to fire you. So they bought the company and started their own business called Four Winds with uh, financial help from his father. And uh, they still are around today and um, are part of the Beneteau Boats, built out of France. And finally, Sea uh, Ray Boats is another uh, important manufacturer. They get started down in Oxford, Michigan, uh, kind of a gravel pit area down there where I live. Uh, the... Uh, C. Ray, uh, Cornelius Ray, uh, got to start uh, with a company called Carcraft and then uh, transformed it into uh, C. Ray, taking on his two initials of his name. And uh, he produced boats that had really well done interiors. Uh, most of the time you think of just the exterior of the boat and how it looks, but it was really uh, these guys, would, the way they styled the inside of the boat, uh, making it more attractive to the driver and the consumer. Uh, that really kick them off and get them going. It's not a one billion dollar a year industry. Now, uh, we still talk about building boats in traditional methods too. This is a shot of the Great Lakes Boat Building School down in Cedarville, and uh, this is taken a few years back. But uh, what they do at the school is to teach people how to build according to both traditional methods. They're also using new techniques and new materials, such as using epoxies for different hulls for both manufacturing and also for repair work. And uh, here you see a class that's literally learning how to build a boat. And uh, I think uh, I had the opportunity this past summer to go down and do their commencement speech. It was amazing, the kind of craftsmanship that's involved in building something like this. But uh, it's really important for uh, keeping wooden boats around to keep the preservation techniques for them around. And it's real important for people who have those same kind of of skills and workmanship uh, to do the work for you. Uh, There's still families involved in boat building. This is Steve and Ben Van Dam, uh, taken back in the 1970s probably. Uh, The little boy that you see is now the project manager for Dad's company. uh, uh, Ben Van Dam is uh, still building boats today, but uh, they build very nice custom boats down in Boeing City. And when you go about studying boat building history, I, I got lucky. I, I work in a building that also has a library in it. And so I, I have a library in Michigan up across from the hall from me where I can go there on my lunch hour and do some research. But there's lots of places like the Shoulders Library here that have great resources for you to take a look at. And things like uh, city directories that are both in the library here and also at Chippewa County Historical Society. You could learn all about boat builders just in this area alone. Uh, There's things like census records that show you how you could link uh, family members together in terms of the history. Uh, There were a couple different people by the name of Hyacinth Chenier that were Mackinac boat builders down on uh, Mackinac Island in the 1850s. And the only way I could figure out who who they were was they spelled their names just slightly different uh, in the census records. They were father and son, I think. There's also things like the Sanborn insurance maps which show you how the company uh, plant was laid out and what kind of materials it was built out of and how the factory operations were organized. Like if the paint shop had to be a long way away from the foundry that made the castings for the engines. Uh, there's a lot of old periodicals online. You could read uh, old boating magazines from 1919 like I was doing last night on my sofa uh, and finding different boats that were built by John Hacker. Uh, There's also things like oral histories where people have interviewed boat builders and collected those and put them in the libraries and those are real important resources because they can oftentimes give you clues to how a boat was built um, as an individual and what kind of what the daily work life was like. Uh, One of the stories they talk about in the book is about a high school student who uh, was making plugs, little wooden plugs that went over the screws in those boats that were built at the Dachel Carter shipyard during World War II. And they gave him a special little, uh, drill bit to cut them out with out of little pieces of uh, thin mahogany. And that's what he did after his homework was done is just crank out little button after little button of mahogany and turn them over by the bushel load to the shipyard. And then they were incorporated into those ships. But that's how he helped with the war effort. And so it was a real important story to. To pass on, and the only way I found out about it was somebody had interviewed the guy because he'd uh, worked in a shipyard for a little while. So oral histories are real important. There's also records at your local historical society that can oftentimes be helpful. And uh, finally, ask for help. And uh, that concludes the formal part of my presentation. So.
0: You know, <laughs> there are, there are Are there any major boat builders here in the Sioux? The only one I I can think of, and I I might have the wrong city on this, because there's like 1,500
1: boat builders in the state. Uh, There's Portage Lake Lake Machine and Marine. And they were building landing craft during uh, uh, the Korean War. And it was an important manufacturer at one time. Uh, There's Elmo Kibbe, who is a... a long-time builder who uh, I think probably operated a boat livery like we saw early on where he would build a lot of different rowboats, Uh small, small-scale builder. It was Kitty and Shields in its earliest years. Um, uh, Mary June, I think, uh, is related to a boat builder by the name of Francis uh, Xavier Pema, uh who uh, was a, a long-time boat builder from about 1910 on up through uh, the 1920s. Again, small-scale builders, but they had small shops that would hire two or three people and, and still build uh, numerous boats, uh, maybe not real high-powered boats, but very, very important little companies of their own right for serving the local populations. So um, there's going to be a big uh, boat exhibit over at the Boniface Art Center this summer. Uh, if you get a chance to head over to Escaraba, um they're going to be doing a thing on wooden boats over there, uh, I believe. And, and Talking all about you, people builders. So that'll be a real interesting exhibit to see how that turns out. So, any other questions that I can try and answer? Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Is that going to be the, the, the uh, project? You asked the office Do you have a date on that? Or? I think it's August, but I'm not certain of the exact start date. But uh, yeah, contact the Boniface. They can probably get you the actual start and stop dates for the exhibit. But uh, yeah, it'd be well worth taking in and, and taking a look at. Um, how would you study boat building in the UP? You know, I mean, there's all kinds of manufacturers. Uh, there's uh, a company called Marble Boat Company over in, again, Escanaba area, that uh, or uh, Gladstone, and it got it started as part of Marble Arms Company, the sporting goods manufacturer. It only lasted for about two, three years, but it was still you know, making plywood boats and, and an important little business. And, It's just real interesting stuff to figure out where they start, how they get started, who starts them, how long they last, those kinds of things. So, again, thanks for your time tonight.
0: Thank you.